This is the Bayes Factor, a podcast about the people behind Bayesian statistics and other hot methodological issues in psychological research. In this fourth episode, Alex interviews two prominent journal editors in psychology, Dan Simons and Steve Lindsay. Dan is professor of psychology at the University of Illinois and chief editor of Advances in Methods and Practices in Psychological Science. Steve is professor of psychology at the University of Victoria and chief editor at Psychological Science. They discuss their academic histories, the reproducibility crisis from the perspective of journal editors, and their optimism about new initiatives to reform psychological science. Okay, we're here at SIPS 2017, that's the Society for Improvement of Psychological Science. I'm joined today by Steve Lindsay and Dan Simons. Uh, how are you guys doing? Great. Great. Um, so I thought in this episode we could go through sort of how you ended up where you are uh, academically as editors of pretty prominent journals these days, um, and then discuss topics related to reproducibility uh, sort of the, the reform movement in the field, essentially. Uh, so my first question is just, you know, maybe Steve, you'll start. How did you get your, what's your <coughs> academic story? Where did you come up through and uh, how did you end up in where you are? Well, Alex, I think as with uh, many people, there were a lot of just accidents and things that happened by chance, as far as I can tell. Uh, for example, I started uh, uh, at Anchorage Community College. That was my first year as an undergrad, uh, and I had a really good psych prof. Uh, and then a friend of mine told me he was going to go to a place called Reed College, which I'd never heard of, but I liked my friend a lot, so I applied for Reed and and uh, somehow managed to get in there. And, the, and, you know, it's a small liberal arts college, and I had a fantastic uh, supervisor there named Carol Creedon, and Everybody does an honors thesis, so that got me involved in research. Mm -hmm. But when I finished my undergrad, I was like, I'm never going to school again. I don't, oh. I'm, you know, I'm as educated as I want to be. And I went and did, you know, real world things. But my wildly former supervisor encouraged me to come to Portland for the summer and do a research project. And, uh, and then, well, you know, why don't you apply for grad school? You don't have to go if you get you know, so, <laughs> uh, uh so, and, you know, it all worked out that I, I got into some programs and... What were uh, you doing in between? You took time was, off? Or? I, well, yeah, I was, I was actually doing, like, low-level construction work, mm. you know, carrying lumber and oh, okay. pulling out nails and drilling holes and things. And, okay. I uh, did some commercial fishing also during oh, that. Oh, commercial fishing. Yeah. But anyway, then, you know, I went, I went to uh, Princeton for, for grad school and my first supervisor, the person I went to work with, we just never really clicked, and mm. it was it was a, a, a brilliant person, but but not. We just didn't have a warm rapport, and I wasn't all that enthused with the the work, uh, and uh, 
Marcia Johnson, who uh, had been at, at Stony Brook, moved to uh, Princeton, and I already knew her because she had been a, a, a on sabbatical and visiting Princeton during my first year. So I was able to switch to her, and that just totally changed my world, right? right. And all of a sudden, you know, the research just started pouring out and, and filling up my brain. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so, you know, awesome. sort of things like that, who happened to be where. and Yeah. Do you have a similar story, Dan? Um, I, I didn't do any deep-sea commercial fishing. <laughs> oh, <laughs> but... Uh, not similar in that the path wasn't obvious and linear. So, right. yeah, I, I was an undergrad at another small liberal arts college, Carleton, mm-hmm. um, and had several great advisors, and I was interested in psychology right away. Um, but initially went to college thinking, maybe I'll major in English or French or physics, oh. and decided in the first year, nah, I'll, I'll do psych. Okay. Um, and I initially did, I was interested in cognitive development. So I went to grad school mm-hmm. in cognitive development. I went to Harvard and, and my advisor there, uh, I was working with her and she was more doing language and I was more interested in kind of the perceptual end of things. And then uh, in my, during my first year, I worked with her and I worked with several other people, Dan Schachter and uh, Kurt Fisher and, and several other people. And uh, she very quickly during the first year, uh, went on maternity leave and then took a job at Northwestern. Mm. Oh, okay. At that point, I was trying to decide what I wanted to do, and I was less interested in the memory work that Dan was doing at the time, Mm -hmm. and I decided it was kind of the right time to transfer. So I actually transferred to Cornell um, and worked with Frank Kyle, who does cognitive development sorts of work. So my first three years of grad school were in cognitive development, my first few papers. Oh. And accidentally moved into adult perception. Um, How? uh, (laughs) How do you accidentally do this? I was interested in categorization and object perception, and uh, one of the things we wanted to do was look at how people remember and recognize different kinds of objects and whether they think about them differently. Mm. So we did this sort of simple study I was playing around with as as a way of getting at this, looking at change detection. So you can think about how people remember objects that objects can't really deform their own shapes, mm. whereas animals can in, in very limited ways. So the question was, would people be more likely to notice a change to the shape of an object uh, or the change to the shape of an animal? Do they keep track of that aspect of how objects work? Hmm. So I did this kind of silly, simple animations on video, on televisions, and, um, and we'd have objects go behind a screen and come out slightly changed, and we just found that nobody noticed any of the changes. Oh. So it was change blindness. Right. Um, and kind of ran with that. So I had a, mm. a good friend in grad school, Dan Levin, who's there, and he was some, he's a filmmaker. Um, he does lots of work on motion picture perception, but also was interested in continuity and changes across scenes. So we kind of got together and worked on a whole bunch of projects over, the first, over those next few years. So mm-hmm. I ended up moving toward uh, perception and attention for the last few years. So not, not a linear trajectory. <laughs> no, yeah. no. Uh, and then how, do you, how does one end up as like a, an editor of psych science or uh, AMPS, basically? Mm-hmm. Uh, all these sort of, you know, how do you, how do you get into this position? I don't really understand any of the, si- the systems. Is the it also nonlinear <laughs> or? Yeah, I think, you know, it's, yeah. it is partly just who you know. Uh, yeah. But but I think reviewing is probably the 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 normal road. At least you become known to editors as a as a good reviewer. Mm-hmm. And I've always uh, c- 
cared a lot about reviewing. You know, some people just really hate it. Some people really don't like to do it no. uh, and view it as a big burden and all of that. And I've always seen it as a relatively easy way to make a, a contribution. Mm. You know, actually doing research takes so, so much and takes so long. And, but you can improve the report of a... Uh, a piece of research in you know relatively few hours mm -hmm. so you know I think that was probably the main thing yeah. for me was that when editors were thinking about well who would we who would I find as an associate editor or something you know after a while you'd get known and get on editorial boards and, and they mm -hmm. call you yeah and it's, it's partly just seniority if you're around long enough and you've been doing <laughs> reviews long enough yeah. and you you end up on enough editorial boards and you're you're productive and helpful on the editorial boards and give good feedback mm. gradually kind of jump to that next step i see yeah. i see and i think you guys as editors during this reproducibility crisis maybe have a unique perspective on it um maybe you could speak to how when did you sort of notice or when did mm -hmm. it come to your attention that we had these problems in the field or did they always sort of certain things always bug you or you know uh, when did you really notice it i guess is my question I, I actually got into editing in a slightly different route than other people do because I uh, actually started with conversations with Alex Holcomb, um, who's one of my co-editors on the replication report sorts mm -hmm. of projects. And we noticed this going back to before 2011, before the Stoppel sorts of stuff. Um, he was one of the founders of Psych File Drawer, which was a site that was mm -hmm. gathering examples Hal of Pashler. attempts to replicate. Yeah, yeah Alex yeah. Holcomb and Hal Pashler and a couple of other people were involved in that. Yeah. And we had a, a number of conversations about the need for outlets to do large-scale sort of replication research mm -hmm. and thought about founding a new journal. So we were kind of trying to be revolutionaries. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I got into the editing at that stage when we kind of pitched the idea of the new journal. So we worked at it at the Vision Sciences Conference a couple of times, and then I started contacting all of my colleagues who had been editors or who had started new journals. And tried to get guidance from them on, was this feasible? Was this something that would take off? What was necessary for it to take off? Mm -hmm. And I think word of that got back to people. So I contacted people like Roddy Rodiger, who had started multiple journals over the years. And um, he gave me a lot of advice, as did many other people. Um, and at some point, I got a call from Roddy that there was a publisher's meeting um, that was being held at WashU and wanted me to come. And it was like the next week. So, <laughs> but that was three hours away from me. So, and I grew up there, so that was easy to, easy to do. And it turned out that uh, some folks at APS were interested in incorporating some of the things that Alex and I've been talking about. So it was kind of a unexpected mm. kind of twist in in how we got into it. But we've been thinking about it for a long time. And then you guys started yeah. this registered replication mm -hmm. reports, and yeah. this was at Perspectives in Psych Science. Yeah, so Bobby Spellman was a strong advocate for uh, this sort of work, and she really strongly wanted it at Perspectives. Mm -hmm. So that was, and it fit nicely with her, the sorts of things she was pushing for there. Right, um, right. Yeah. Could you say a word or two about <coughs> what exactly a, a registered replication report is? Yeah, so the idea, uh, the idea of a registered replication report is essentially to do a planned meta-analysis where there's no publication bias. You're not kind of scouring the literature to find all of the things that have been done but not reported. You design a study, design the protocol, get input from the original authors of the study. We're highly selective, and we're still doing these, but we're highly selective about 
the kinds of studies we pick. We want things that have been highly influential, that have what we call high replication value, mm. meaning that yeah. knowing how big the effect is will affect current thinking about that phenomenon. Okay. Right? And we then design a protocol. Uh, Lee Lab takes the role of designing the protocol. We interact with the original authors as much as we possibly can, get input from them on the protocol, um, on early drafts of the manuscript that are supposed to be written in a neutral way before the data are in. Um, and then we solicit labs to participate. Mm -hmm. And we've had anywhere from 10 at the smallest to we have one that's almost finished that has over 40 labs. Oh my. Um, which is maybe too big. That's pretty but, big. But uh, it's, it's a lot of time and resources. Yeah. So yeah. Um, that's maybe a little on the overly big size. I see. But um, all of those labs then submit a description of how they're going to adhere to the protocol that we vet. And then they all conduct the study and we collect all the data. and. We have the analysis scripts written before we know what the data are. So oh, wow. um, right now, one of them is currently being analyzed. I have no idea what the outcome is. I've been okay. eagerly awaiting it. Okay. But the data are now in the hands of the statistician person who's doing the analyses. Cool, so, cool. Yeah. Uh, Steve, when did you start to notice these uh, changes that might need well, to be you know, some Some of this stuff I was picked up on very early. I think probably 25 years ago, mm -hmm. I wrote a proposal for a journal that I wanted to call NERF. Null Nerf. effects and replication failures. Oh, wow. Right? So <laughs> I thought there should be a whole, you know, and that, mm -hmm. that was pretty early. So in some ways I was hip, but but uh, <laughs> but a lot of these issues I had very poor insight into until uh, 2012 I was visiting Marianne Gary's lab in, in uh, Wellington, New Zealand, and uh, she had arranged for Jeff Cumming to come over and give his talk. Of uh, the new statistics. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And he gave basically the live version of the dance of the p-values mm. and for Did me involve dancing yeah was yeah. he up there going <laughs> the now i'm over live here. action no, I'm over here. <laughs> <laughs> i can see him he's pretty funny he's pretty funny guy uh he's certainly he had the speakers going and uh and you know the you, bam, 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 yeah exactly bam, bam. yeah um and for me, that was just revelatory because I'd just recently given up on a line of research that I had been doing with Larry Jacoby. Uh, and I mean, we had good success with a bunch of studies. We published a couple of papers. And then I had this idea that was going to be sort of an acid test about the underlying mechanism. And a challenge of the idea was that I only had like two observations per subject per cell. And I just you know, I tried the experiment, and it would work or a little bit, and then it'd be gone. And I kept changing it and trying again, changing it, trying again. Well, you know, then I, I finally just said, I don't understand what's going on, and gave up on it. And you, after I saw that talk, I realized I probably had like twenty percent power. Yeah. Uh, right. uh, so <laughs> no wonder. <laughs> yeah. I just, I mean, I just had no idea about how low-powered most of my yeah. studies had, had been. And I didn't know that optional stopping was a problem. I thought more data is more truth. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you, know, yeah. there, you know, there are lots of things that I've done that I now would, would perceive as, as, as p-hacking. Um, so th you know, that, that talk and then reading the false positive psychology paper a week later and so forth. And at that time, I was... Uh, on the publication committee of the Psychonomics Society, and mm. so that all of that stuff led me to to uh, make an effort to get them to adopt a new set of statistical guidelines. Mm. Which 
which they eventually did. And uh, Greg Francis and Hal Pashler were really, really key in, in helping make that, that happen. Mm. It's interesting that there were people, you know, I, I had that one year that I, was, that I was at Harvard, I took maybe six statistics classes because wow. Bob Rosenthal and mm. uh, that's Don, more than average. Yeah, it was yeah. a lot more than average. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Bob Rosenthal and Don Rubin were there, and they ran wow. these amazing classes that were, you know, practical data analysis. They'd have a brown bag lunch where people would bring a data analysis problem, and then everybody in the room—it was half statisticians, half psychologists, interested in statistics—would brainstorm about good ways to go about the data. No but kidding. they they co-taught the intro grad stats class. Wow, uh, which was a fascinating experience. That's incredible. Um, That's but, great. I had one yeah. stats class in yeah. in grad school. But Bob, from day one, was railing against optional stopping. Yeah. And, you know, so 20-some-odd huh. years ago, he would, and I, ever since then, I did, right? So you know, the idea that data peaking was a problem was, was not a new phenomenon. People have known that forever. There were papers on sequential data analysis back in the 70s. Yeah, right? even so back towards World War II. Yeah, right? yeah. So hmm. people, people have been aware of this to some extent. And Bob, you know, Bob was always talking about, you know, there's no real fundamental difference in effect between 0.06 and 0.04. And mm -hmm. we should be thinking about effect size and mm -hmm. educating editors who right. often didn't know any better and were accepting things based on the wrong criteria. But yeah. he was very f clear on the downsides of peeking at your data and then deciding whether or not to keep those data and collect, continue collecting data. Right. So I've, I've always preached that in my lab. And for years and years, people just kind of said, yeah, whatever, Dan, you know, <laughs> and yeah. it's only really in the last, you're just a nitpicker. Yeah, yeah right. It's, it's, it's really one of the his last quirks. Five years or so. <laughs> yeah, the last five years or so people have come around, I think partly because you can see the consequences in simulations, yeah. which you couldn't back then. That right. is so true. It's huge. The seeing the simulations is so yeah. helpful. And, and some yeah. of the papers that have come out showing how easily you can fool yourself. Yeah. So right. that combination, really in the last four or five years, I, I've seen just a huge turn in how people think about these sorts of things. Yeah. Whereas, you know, there have been attempts at revolution every 20 years or yeah. so they've <laughs> yeah. always failed and this is the first time i've seen it actually hang on right and it's partly social media partly the ease of demonstrating it yeah those you know, shiny apps it. shiny apps are great yeah. those are incredible yeah. i mean i wonder if you think that uh one of these driving forces of the reproducibility crisis is poor statistical education i mean some some might say you know the the resources are available for people to learn this stuff but you know, they don't uh, have the right incentives or this yeah. this or that. But do you yeah. think that there's um, something to be said about, I mean, Dan, your education with these two brilliant, really influential mm -hmm. statisticians really shaped the way you see this stuff. I mean, and I cared about it, too, at the time, because I liked, I liked it. Right, right, right. But I think that's part of the issue, right, is people have to want to devote themselves. There's so many tools and so many ways you can think about these right. sorts of things. And, you know, even just different forms of social media communication. It seems like there's a new one every couple of days. Yeah, and yeah. the latest trendy people are in on it, um, right. which means that you know, there's always more to learn. And the question is, where do you devote your time? Right? And there are a lot of people who think, well, I know what I'm doing. I'm doing what my lab's tradition has been. Right. In some cases, that's just fine. And they like that. They don't necessarily like statistics. Yeah, um, they're it's not sort of hard to really like statistics if you're not. If you're not a geek. Yeah, if you're not but, a geek. <laughs> <laughs> But, yeah, so I think, I think it's, you know, yeah, you could say it's a statistics education, but it's also the case that, you know, you're never going to get everything from a class. Right. You have to be wanting to right. look into it and understand it at a deeper level. And that takes a lot of effort and time away from things that you might actually enjoy and mm. care about. So I, I don't fault people for not necessarily 
picking up on all of those details spontaneously. Right. I mean, yeah. There are plenty of tools out there that's like, I should learn how to use Git for versioning. Mm-hmm. Right. And I could do it. I know I could do it. And it would take me a number of weeks because the interface is incredibly kludgy <laughs> and clunky and arcane. Yeah. But I could, I could, I know I could learn to do it, but should I spend my time on Not that? Not this week. Not yeah. this week. <laughs> Not this week. Yeah, right. Should I spend my time on yeah. that? Or should yeah. I spend my time on designing a new study? Uh, right. And yeah. you know, that's a trade-off. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, what is the statistics education like in your grad departments? Is it, has it changed over the last couple of years? I imagine it would have, but. Well, I think UVic has pretty strong stats training, I would say, relative to most places. And always has. You know, my colleague Mike Masson uh, is is uh, you know really pretty savvy, sophisticated uh, person who has long had uh, like he he wrote a book on um, randomization tests in like the early nineties. Oh, uh, and uh, you know he worked with Jeff Loftus on developing within subject confidence intervals and stuff like that. So. And, then, and uh, we also have uh, quite a number of developmentalists who are, you know, have been using HLM and hierarchical, uh, hierarchical linear models. Mo- yeah, yeah, hierarchical linear models for for uh, a, a long time. So there's a lot of sophistication in that sense. But I, on the other hand, I don't think we do particularly well with the like methods. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, training and and even like philosophy of science kind of of training could yeah. could I think be a, a lot better, right? Like, do you cover? I mean, when I was taught in my statistics classes, they didn't really teach us like how to plan your sample size, yeah. or yeah. you know, what even is power, or you know, these sort of mm-hmm. things that might you might pick up at like the SIPS workshop here, mm-hmm. and then you'll take it back to your university, and you're like. Guys, have you heard of this? This is this uh, fundamental tool that, you know, where have we been? Yeah. Where's this been our yeah. whole lives? Yeah. 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 I think that's one of the things that SIPS is pretty good about uh, is sort of exposing people to this. But I wonder if we're sort of still in a bit of a bubble. Mm-hmm. We sure seem to Absolutely. be. Uh, yeah. You know, the Eric, Ike, and I have been working at Psych Science to try to address yeah. these issues. And... Uh, uh, there's a paper in press it was psych science uh, out of Scott Maxwell's lab uh, and uh, as part of that paper they they just sampled psych science and like last year and 10 years ago or something and mm-hmm. uh, just looking at sample size and no improvement mm-hmm. um, so yeah no, it's hard to hard to get people to move wow <laughs> and it's, it's also hard to communicate the advances right and that's actually one of the main motivations for the the new journal amps right yeah. is that it's not a traditional methods journal and traditional methods journals are written by and for methodologists right, right. so the people who are writing for them are writing to appeal to other methodologists who are already very savvy right which means that Just geek to geek yeah exactly <laughs> so most of the papers if you're not already a methodologist or a statistician or really savvy about those things most of those papers are going to be inaccessible even right. if they're intended not to be right mm-hmm. and the goal of amps is not to write for methodologists but to write for the broad membership of avps most of whom are doing going about doing their thing and they're not you know attuned to every modern change in the field or right. every new technique or every way to do it. So the, the idea is to help communicate those advances that are going to be most useful and practical to people across the discipline and not just to the methodologists who are developing new techniques. Right. And so I wonder if um, we 
we might have this new journal, but we mm. also need to sort of think about who is like in social media who, you know, unlike Twitter, for example, the only people who see what you talk about are the people who follow you. Yeah. Right. And yeah. you only follow people necessarily maybe who you already agree with. Right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, that's yeah, an echo chamber. Yeah, yeah I mean, people say. and it's no question there's a bubble, right? So the, the people who attend SIPs all already know each other online. Right. right? Yeah. And they might not have ever met each other, but they, they know each other, they know their perspectives, and they're thinking about these sorts of issues of open science in ways that I don't think most of the field has yet. And mm -hmm. not through no fault of their own. It's just not what they're... Hasn't they're, maybe even it's come not, up. It's not the thing that kind of gets them going in the morning. Yeah, right. Um, and that's totally understandable, right? So... You know, but I, I found this when I go and talk at other places or talk to my own department, and you know, I, I'm sometimes like stunned by the things that people I talk to have never heard of before, hmm. yeah. such so, as oh, you know, you might hear about a prominent case of misconduct that'll be just talked about extensively online, right? And you talk to other people, and I'm like, who's that? I've mm. never heard of that, or what was that finding? And, you know, right. Um, I've I've given a talk on p-values, which is you know, sounds like the most boring talk in the world but it's <laughs> actually kind of cool no, to yeah. some to who people here to people here thought, it's exciting yeah. who would have thought statistics <laughs> yeah. would be yeah. so sexy but I, right? I, I, right? I do this as a brown bag <laughs> talk and it was designed to be a talk for people who are not following everything mm -hmm. that's going on mm -hmm. and it's everybody thinks okay I'm going to give a talk on best practices I'm going to talk about p-hacking and that's made the rounds people do know about that now right um, but it actually has nothing about p-hacking at all oh. right? it's only about how do we interpret evidence mm. and you know, it, it's stuff that I learned just three, four years ago. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. you know, not surprisingly, if I, I'm really attuned to this stuff and I only learned it a few years ago, most people aren't right. familiar yep. with it yet. So, yep. yeah. Yeah. I was just at a meeting in Cologne and there were uh, a couple of senior people there. I won't mention names, but, but uh, one of them was very, you know, strongly asserting uh, his beliefs about the distribution of, of, of p-values and they're just wrong right right so this is somebody who's a very intelligent very experienced person who's you know been up to his elbows in in uh, statistics for for uh, decades and and his intuitions yeah. like mine uh were just wrong yeah. right <laughs> right well it is i mean like we were saying earlier until you really like program out a simulation yeah. Yeah. it's often i mean you just see like a formula and you have no intuition yeah. about this, yeah. Yeah. and then you write it into R or something like this, and then you see, oh well, p-values really are uniform. Yeah, and there's no it, wow. It's, it's one of those, it's, I think it's an illusion of knowledge sort of thing. So yeah. Christian mm -hmm. Brian have written about this sort of phenomenon. There are lots of other people, uh, mm. Frank Kyle and Leon Rosenblatt, do this work on what they call the illusion of explanatory depth, oh. which yeah. is a what is that kind of clunky name for the idea that you think you understand things in a much deeper level than you really do. Okay, and the the. My favorite example of that is if you ask people, do you know how a toilet works? Yeah. Oh. Right? And people say, oh, yeah, I know how a toilet works. And then you ask them something like, well, what makes the water fill up the bowl again after you flush it? And <laughs> what's the relationship between the bowl and the tank above it? I have no people idea. People have no idea. <laughs> yeah. They'll say, yeah, I know, how, I know how that works. And what they really know how to do is work a toilet. And I think it's the same way with p-values, right? They, people know how to get a p-value out of their programs, and they feel like they understand what it means and how to interpret it, but really they just know how to report mm. a p-value right. yeah. using right. APA style. Right. And they don't actually understand what it is or what yeah. it does or what yeah. it means. Right. And again, I would say level. that was we true all that of way. me yeah. until, until just shockingly embarrassing yeah. recently. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Do you find that this is probably the case with you know most of the methods people are using, not just 
interpreting a p-value but mm -hmm. also like when they're doing an ANOVA or when mm -hmm. they're doing a multi-level yeah, model or something yeah. right you yeah. sort of you know how to set it up but like that's if you're right to explain yeah. Yeah. yeah the real core concepts oh. maybe you wouldn't quite a lot know. of people how many people understand what an interaction term actually yeah. is testing yeah not or many. how to yeah. interpret the the effects that you get mm -hmm. when there is versus when there isn't interaction yeah. terms right? yeah yeah um, well i mean if, if you ask uh, how many people who listen to this podcast probably most of the people who listen to this podcast will know what a removable interaction was right right i would say that most people in graduate school who've taken graduate statistics have no idea mm -hmm. when an interaction is removable or not mm -hmm. and it completely changes how you interpret the nova interactions right? <laughs> it, when when is what do you mean when <laughs> no, when you don't have a crossover uh -huh, interaction right. so when the lines don't so, overlap right. it could all just be due to a scale shift right, right? so if both right, lines sure. are increasing so this is like in visual search for example one of attention yeah. fields mm -hmm. you're constantly comparing search slopes Right. Yeah. And it's based on an interaction between two slopes, yeah. one going up more than the other. Right. right, right. And unless they're crossing, that could entirely be due to the something about the scale, scale right. on yeah. the y-axis. So you, you can change it, it so that yeah. it becomes parallel. Right. Yeah. And unless you think that that y-axis maps on perfectly linearly to what's in your mind that's mm -hmm. driving, that's mm -hmm. driving the response times... Yeah, I mean, we presume we don't have a millisecond response time generator in our head, <laughs> um, and nobody would predict that. Right. Mm -hmm. But if that's right. not the case, then that interaction term is not actually evidence for an interaction. Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, <laughs> or of the sort you think. There's yeah. this really great paper. Uh, I can't remember exactly the title, but it, it sort of goes through how you can get from these sort of not parallel but mm -hmm. not crossing mm -hmm. lines right. through very simple changes yep. into perfectly parallel. Uh -huh. right. I do a demonstration of this where I take the same data and it's just log transformed versus not transformed. Right. So I created right. it in such a way that oh. one of them looks like a standard right. sort of one line increasing more than the other uh, sort of interaction and the other one has two parallel lines and I ask people which one's you know, which one's a real interaction. And right. of course they all say the one that's like this, and it's, it's the same data, <laughs> right? It's yeah. exactly the same data, mm -hmm. just transformed. Oh, wow. yeah. That's a good illustration. Yeah, it works really well. Uh, so I wonder if you, um, as you know, the, the methods revolution has really been picking up steam, certain ideas from the Bayesian camp of statistics have started to be more prominent. Mm -hmm. There's still a, largely a minority. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, you definitely don't see them that frequently. But I wonder what your experiences is with this. So when did you first maybe notice that these Bayesian analyses were coming in with papers? And did you like see this and go like, what the heck is a Bayesian statistics? <laughs> I thought it was just statistics, right? Yeah. We've gotten this reaction from a few people. Well, I, because of, of Mike Masson, I had a little bit probably earlier exposure to, to uh, Bayesian thinking than, than uh, other people might have had. Uh, not you know not to say that I'm an expert or a Bayesian, but I had at least some familiarity to it. But it used to be quite rare that you know very very rarely see submissions. And now now my perception is there's sort of two camps. There are people who are you know really sophisticated and into it and sort of beyond my competence to to evaluate. And then there are other people who. Uh, Sometimes because I've asked them to, uh, are are doing uh, you know calculating Bayes factor, particularly with respect to evidence for a null hypothesis. Mm. But who you know, almost anybody can can run JASP, right. uh, and so what you see over and over again is they've just accepted the default priors and uh, or even. You, and, they, and they usually they don't even say anything in the they don't the even paper. think about the prior right. right they don't yeah exactly so they're kind of missing missing the point uh, <laughs> and 
So that's that's I think the the most common problem that that I see. Yeah. And I haven't seen as much since the kinds of papers that I'm editing are not focused on hypothesis testing in quite the same way. They're focused on estimation, yeah. which would work perfectly under a Bayesian sort of approach. Oh, yeah. But it's also the case that we're you know, it's not absolutely essential for what we're describing because we're taking we're just looking for an average effect size. Right. So it's a different goal for the replication mm-hmm. reports. Mm-hmm. Right. I imagine we'll see more. I, w- the one thing I have seen already in just a few months of taking submissions for AMPS is uh, the fights within the Bayesian community yeah. and oh, yes. the fights between Bayesians and frequentists. So we've already gotten submissions about why everybody else is wrong. <laughs> you know, and that, that seems to be a common issue. And yes. I think it's actually potentially slowing adoption by people who don't want to jump into a I've big fight. I've noticed this, yeah. yeah. I've definitely noticed this. I mean, you get things like, oh, you know, the experts don't agree on this, so why should I even consider, That's right. you know, yeah. dipping or, my toes yeah. into it? If, if or maybe I should wait until in, it's resolved. Yeah, you know, or someone's going to come in and really, you know, yeah. tear me down on Twitter or something yeah. because they yeah. don't like what I did. Yeah. Right? So, yeah. There are a few too many pissing matches I think in, in that world. And, <laughs> yep. you know, and, and, and I think yeah. there's a sense in which the goal should be to move people toward thinking about evidence in and precision in better ways. And right. there are lots of ways to do that, and none of them are going to be perfect and yeah. you know, necessarily building models from ground yeah. up in perfect ways. But, yeah. you know, we can get people closer. Right. But, yeah, I mean, I have seen the same sorts of things you have of, you know, people not really understanding what they're doing, plugging it in. Because people want to be able to plug and chug right. in their analyses. Yeah. And right. I, and that's I how totally many people are that. taught it, right? Yeah. It's that yeah. when you're doing statistics, there's yeah. if you have this design, this is the analysis. Yeah. So yeah. you get it, you yeah. plug it in. Yeah. And it's like <clears throat> essentially the same as their methods section, right? It's like, yeah. I need the methods section. I need a results section, but really yeah. I want to talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and some people yeah. are purists and want people to establish what their prior distributions are for the variance of each, you know, yeah. each factor. Yes. They want to know exactly to what distribution. Detail. Yeah, to, to a level of precision that is going to be very hard unless you're in an area that has mm-hmm. really deep knowledge of mm-hmm. the structure of those. And even then, and it's still hard to still hard. elicit this yeah, knowledge, right? That's right. You have yeah. to take it and put it into an abstraction yeah. of a model. Yeah. Right? And, and mm-hmm. I, it's great if you can formalize it that way because it forces you to really think it through. But right. you know, not everybody is ever going to be capable of designing a model from first principles all the way up to what right. their data structures are going to be right. and have that be a functional way of doing an analysis, especially for something that's exploratory. Right. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, right. That's, that's asking a lot. Yeah, I mean, have you guys used Bayesian stuff in your own research? Mm-hmm. I, uh, yeah. What are your experiences with this? I mean, how did you begin to learn it yourselves? Uh, I'm kind of interested to hear that story because I had to teach myself everything, right? And yeah. I think a lot of people have this because they're not taught in school. Mm-hmm. And was it the same? Uh, yeah, and I, I would, my knowledge is, is very still very, very limited. Uh, yeah. Me but, too. You know, a certain amount of... Uh, talks and a certain mm-hmm. amount of, of, of reading and yeah. floundering around. <laughs> yeah, I re- Trial I ran by kind of, fire. Yeah. yeah. I did yeah. an informal seminar where we, we tried to work through Kruschke's book as the first pass. Yeah. Okay. Um, the puppy book. As yep. it's often yeah, the known. first edition of the puppy book. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, we, we, we worked through that as best we could and, uh, you know, kind of muddled through. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of blog reading. Right, um, mm-hmm. right. But yeah, yeah. I've, I've used I've used Bayesian Blocks analyses really in a few helpful. papers. Um, not necessarily the best way, you know. I would mm-hmm. probably do it differently now, but okay. Yeah, we we now you know think about it more in a Bayesian way. I, I, I it changes the way you think about yeah. the problems, right? So I mean, I, I, yeah. my last several papers haven't had any p-values in them. I, okay. I've been moving more toward a you know Bayesian style 
Okay. But most of my papers don't have any need for statistics, so right. Yeah. that's right. I, I I love the phrase yeah. that your data passed the interocular traumatic. Yeah, test. Right, yep, right. Yeah, they just hit hey, you, you right between the eyes. Right? Yeah, yeah. 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 And and yeah. I find that most people, when I mean, if you're really working with data, that's so like obvious, right? Like you see it in, yeah. while it's happening yeah. almost, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, statistics are superfluous, right? Yeah. Yeah. You see yeah. it. There, there's no reason to do statistics on a visual illusion, <laughs> right? It's like yeah. you, you right. see it or you don't see it. There's, yeah, there's your yeah. statistic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah, and that may be extreme, but yeah. what one of the, one of the uh, lessons that I get out of all this thing, you know, like working with students is uh, to discourage people from uh, getting into a research line where the question is, is there no effect or is there a tiny effect mm. right and a lot of cognitive psychology i think is is exactly in that that realm right yeah. you know is there an effect of hypnosis on memory or yeah, yeah or not and it's like if there is one it's it's small yeah. and, and the other approach is taking a small effect and then trying to you know a small effect in absolute magnitude terms right so you're finding a 30 millisecond difference and then you want to see what affects that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Which yeah. is it's you know, pretty you're just hard. Yourself six no millisecond effect sizes. Or yeah. Oh yeah. 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 yeah I just by That's default, right. I'm not interested yeah. in most of those. I mean, yeah. they might be theoretically interesting, but yeah. you know, I'm not sure that they are going to generalize to anything in the world. And it's, it's really hard yeah. to even look at those with yep. the levels of data that psychologists collect. Yeah. Right? yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, depending, unless depending you're a psychophysicist. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was going to say. Yeah. Most of those tiny. Most of those tiny response time effects are tons and tons and tons yeah. of trials but not that many and people and but within, 20 people but within, within, yeah, within subject, subject with yeah. you know thousand trials per subject yeah right yeah and you can look at it there but it's but it's i just think it's do. not the right career move yeah you know, it, it's better if you can find a big effect that you're interested in yeah to study that yeah. find the big effect and then make it go then, away yeah, and make move, it change move it around yeah. and yeah mm. exactly yeah and how can people do this now i mean aren't have we got all the low-hanging fruit or I don't think so. Yeah, I don't think so either. No? No, I yeah. think there's so much we don't know. I mean, it's just that when you don't know it, it's, you don't yeah. see it. Especially in cognitive, right? Yeah. So most of yeah. cognitive psychology is studying tasks that we've been studying for 30 years. Yeah. And yeah. not actually and studying it's phenomena. it's so smart to say studying tasks because, yeah, yeah. yeah, we've become Yeah, so I mean, that's, that's the, the drawback of cognitive psychology yeah. is that it's studying tasks and often has lost sight of what those tasks are supposed to be standing in for, mm. right? But there's lots of real-world phenomena that have essentially been unstudied. Mm. And yeah, so I, I think there's plenty yeah. of, yeah. I mean, I don't know what, what it means to be low-hanging in this context, but there's plenty of fruit yeah. out there. Yeah, okay. Um, and there are plenty of effects that are not tiny okay. to work with. Mm -hmm. so. Hmm. Yeah, so I wonder, um, what do we think about moving from this SIPS meeting where we are, where we've ducked out? Um, we have some... You know, last SIPS was, you know, big changes were influenced with this, right? We had the Psy Archive preprint <coughs> server was created. Mm -hmm. uh, we had a lot of implementation at Psych Science, for example, after that meeting. Mm -hmm. Was that check or yep. something like yep. this? I mean, I wonder what you think the next steps are for this field. Like, where do we think that this movement is going next? Well, the, you know, the big announcement here yesterday that APA has uh, gone into a partnership with with the uh, Center on Open Science is, I, I view that as a very big, big step. I think yeah. that will, you know, there's going to be a lot of people in the next few days who will become aware of, of the Center for Open Science th yeah. that weren't aware of it. And there's going to be 80-something editors in the next while who will be going, 
what what's this about badges and yeah. you know and and uh, and I I think it must just solidify the center yeah. uh, uh, in a in a very big way and should uh, now allow give them leverage for more funding and and so forth yeah. so. And it's a big society, right? I mean, so yeah. you're reach, you're reaching, massive. and both APA and APS are both massive. Yeah. But yeah. you know, it's not clear that we've even reached the membership of APS, even no. though all of the yeah. empirical journals are now on board with a lot yeah. of the right. sorts of you know movement. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that everybody else is involved. But when when a society as big as APA makes that sort of an announcement that hey, look, here's something we're doing, and if that goes out to all of their membership, yeah, right. that's a lot of people who are suddenly going to be asking, hey, what's all this stuff? Yeah, right. and something I'd really like to emphasize is sort of the positive, mm -hmm. uplifting aspect of this uh, uh, new appreciation for replicability. That because uh, uh, some people view it as yeah. as a negative, attacking, uh, criticizing, undermining, blah blah blah. Uh, but really, if you just flip it around. It, it, it's such an exciting time yeah. to be in in psychological science, and if we can sort of get that message uh, across and start start rewarding people for doing the right things instead of sort of focusing on beating people up for doing the wrong things. Right. Yeah. Um, I, don't know, I think it's it's. Uh, I really think that's happening. The potential I mean, is great, and yeah. it, it feels to me yeah. like it I'm, is I'm happening. Much more optimistic about the state of the field now than I was 15 years ago, 10 mm -hmm. years ago, five years ago. Mm -hmm. Wow! And you know, as I was saying before, Bob Rosenthal was preaching much much of this stuff yeah. 20 some odd years ago. Right. And nothing was happening then. We you know, we were still trying to educate edi editors about you know why we shouldn't care that much about p values and why we should care about effect sizes. Yeah. Um, yeah. 25 years ago. And now, you know, we don't have to do as much of that educating. People mm -hmm. are kind of realizing, hey, we can do this better. Right. So, so maybe we'll end with uh, one question that I'd like to ask people is, if you were sort of all powerful and you could snap your fingers and implement a change that would, you would think would, would have a m big effect on improving the field, uh, whether it's at a, a journal level or whether it's at the education level or, you know, some other level, um, I wonder what your thoughts are on, on where you would target. But yeah, I'd like to just hear your thought on this. Just one thing? Thoughts. Yeah. Just one thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Or, or, you know, what might, what, things what that one are, change would make and, the biggest and, difference. Because if you make one change, yeah. sometimes that cascades into other things, right? It might lead to it. Yeah. Mean, for me, th I think the thing I would say, and th this is maybe uh, coming, you know, What's the right word? I have a biased perspective, but if I could change something, it would be to uh, shift what people are trying to do away from uh, trying to surprise, mm. uh, find counterintuitive and, things, and, and entertain mm. uh, towards trying to understand. So I, th I think there's a long. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of forces in the world that are interested in, in surprise and, as you say, counterintuitive and, um, and marketing, selling, you know, what, what's going to get in the newspaper or those kinds of things. And that, you know, that affects the, the professional societies and, and uh, journals and journal editors and uh, universities. And then, you know, then that really puts a lot of pressure on on, on authors to be providing that uh, mm -hmm. that uh, flair kind of, of thing. 
So yeah. that's, that's I mean, that, that was partly one of the goals of the the paper we wrote on constraints on generality. Yeah. Oh yeah. Another thing that came out. Yeah. Another thing that came out of last sips. Well, right. Could you explain this? Yeah. So I mean, the main goal there was just to be more transparent about what it is that a study does and doesn't talk about. Mm. Right. So we we already know to talk about the limitations of our studies. Right. right. And people do that, and they already describe in their methods what their population is like, what their what their sample is like. Right. Um. But often you'll find the general conclusion makes grand statements about all of humanity under mm. all conditions. Mm. And none of our studies actually generalize that broadly. So the whole purpose of that was to just be transparent about the constraints. So what's our target population? How, what, what's the population that our materials are taken from, that our participants are drawn from? And what, what evidence do we have that they generalize beyond those? What, which of those things are based on prior evidence? Which of those things are based on plausible speculation? Mm-hmm. And which of those things are just hunches? Right. And the idea is just yeah. to be straightforward about, okay, this is a study. It contributes this bit of knowledge, which every study does. It doesn't contribute everything. It just answers this question with this sample at this time point. And then the question is, you know, how likely do we think it is to generalize to other samples? Are there good reasons to? And that tells you what needs to be done next. Right. right. Yeah. So. We should mention that Yuchi Shoda yeah, uh, was also uh, on that, that so paper with us. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, And it, as you say, we really Dan and Yuchi were drafting it. We all did here. It. Yeah. yeah. Well, we didn't. I don't think yeah. I got. Yeah, yeah we did the white paper here until, and then it. Yeah. Okay. until yeah. after the meeting. But uh, yeah, um, yeah, that came out of last sips. Um, right. Yeah, and it had. It used to have a bit of a funnier acronym. Yeah, it was the statement of the limits of generality. So it was the slog. That doesn't that. really mark it too well. No, I and it got changed to log, and then yeah, we, we got rid really of that like and changed yeah. it. Yeah, mm-hmm. and then cog, which, you know, turning the wheels of science. Yeah. Oh, I like yeah. that. Yeah. I so it actually has yeah. some sort yeah. of a, yeah. yeah. It's not a horrible acronym. No. Although I still, <laughs> I'm still kind of fond of slog. Yeah. Slog is just is so great. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I think that's a great place to wrap up Good. on. I want to say right. thanks, Dan. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, thanks Alex. That was yeah. great. Fun. fun. All right. We'll see you cool. next time. Excellent. You can find this podcast and all the background information mentioned in it on the Tufts High Lab website at sites.tufts.edu slash hilab slash podcast or follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at the base factor. We want to thank Sol Albert and Laura de Ruiter for their technical support, Sotaro Kita from Warwick University for generously letting us use his lab for several interviews, the Cognition and Individual Differences Lab at UC Irvine for their financial support, and Theo Vosse for creating the music for this podcast.